Hey guys, welcome back to VM Nation. We are live. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us again today. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. There it is. I get mixed up. Uh, we're going to have a fun conversation today with, with my brother, Alex. You know, we just became friends, but I'm what a nice, great person. Uh, somebody that I can't wait to learn from. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, my new book just came out. It actually hit Amazon twice, number one helping out with veterans and also helping out with first responders. Uh, but it, we, we included a bunch of bonuses, so it's on sale now. I'll leave that in the link. And also, if you guys love coffee um, and if you love CBD, there's a young lady came out with a product called Soldier Girl Coffee. It's coffee with CDB, CBD, and it tastes amazing. And it's an all-veteran-owned business that hires nothing but veterans. So check out Soldier Girl Coffee. Com. Now, guys, this is going to be fun. Um, I kind of did a little digging on my friend Alex because I actually uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and how you became the man that you are today. You are the marketing and the branding genius. I don't know about genius, but uh Richard, thanks so much for having me on. And guys, for everybody that's listening that was active military, uh, served our country, thank you so much for that service. It's something that uh, it seems that it's not very politically correct to say thank you for that anymore, which I think is an absolute travesty. But the sacrifices you guys made and continue to make is an absolute honor to be a part of the one great nation that's able to do that for one another. So thank you. I love it. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I'm Alex Vonderhaar, I'm the CEO and founder of Hidden Falls Media. We're one of the United States only and premier neuromarketing agencies. So we look at the neuroscience and psychology behind consumer research and why people buy what they buy online. And we help small businesses that uh, don't partake overseas with the uh, CCP or anything where they're, uh, where they're driving business away from America. We try to help promote American business owners by leveraging research that stays in academia for the most part. And our job is to make really complicated stuff super simple so business owners can implement it to help build better marketing campaigns. So now, and, and, um, and I'm very interested in neuroscience. Um, and ever since I had uh, a TBI, it's, it, it's really interesting to me, the, the concept of the mind, the brain. Um, Mr. Tim Ferriss is another guy. He's, he's all about you know, neuroscience, neurotropics. So I, I'm, I could just geek out on this. But uh, were you interested in this in high school? Or were you an athlete? Kinda. Were you a, a good student? Um, none of the above. So I was a really bad athlete. I didn't take training seriously. I was a really bad student. I didn't take academics seriously. Uh, what I loved in high school was what most uh, young, dumb, and full of cum kids do when they're 17, which is I love to be a little bit too reckless, and most of that involved doing drugs and, you know, not being down the right path. I didn't have a great male mentor growing up, and it, it led me down a weird path. I actually ended up getting a full-ride arts scholarship uh, to a local university here in Cincinnati, uh, University of Cincinnati's DAP program, which is one of the world's best design and art programs out there. And I wanted to go do computer-generated imaging. So like the stuff that you see in Marvel movies where 
you know, it's what makes Marvel and Star Wars and all these amazing films so great is some of that CGI and computer imaging that they do with special effects. So I had a full ride scholarship to go do that. My parents and my uh, girlfriend at the time said, absolutely not. There's no way you'll ever make a living with it. You know, you won't be able to ever support a family doing graphic imaging. And, you know, you should really just put the idea of art or anything creative away. So me being kind of uh, rambunctious and bullheaded, I said, well, if I'm going to do that and you're going to make me take up all this student debt so I can go get a job to then go pay off the student debt even further, I'm going to pick one of the hardest things I can find, which will, and what I was already kind of interested in, which is psychology. So I got into psychology at Ohio State University, and then I fell in love with the field of neuroscience and psychopharmacology. So psychopharm is the idea that um, anything that we put into our bodies, whether it's a food, a liquid, a drug in any way, shape, or form, how that affects our behavior. So both legal and illegal, uh, the brain really can't tell a difference. Only society tells us the difference between the two. So how do we actually study that and learn that? And I was fully going down the route of becoming a neurosurgeon because of this. So not academically gifted in any way. I skirted through high school and even through college. You know, I, I really wasn't a straight A student, but I was um, I was one that if I found if I got fascinated by something, I was all in. So there was nothing that would stop me from learning it. And after a near death experience where I was dead for two and a half minutes, I, uh, I was no longer going to be able to be a neurosurgeon. So I took about the eight, I took about 18 months off of that, went around, started training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu because I needed something to kind of reconnect me out of academics and find a way to kind of find peace with what had happened to me. And I started training with somebody. He cracked me in my floating rib, uh, which if anybody's ever cracked a floating rib, it's a real pain in the butt to deal with that because every breath you take is just painful. So uh, I, I found flotation therapy tanks and I experimented with psychedelics after my near-death experience. I'd uh, studied Wim Hof's breathing methods. I'd studied a whole bunch of stuff to try to find answers. And the closest thing I got after that was flotation therapy tanks. And I found the guy that owned the place. He offered me a job. I was making 825 an hour. And I started working there and I built his center up from $100,000 in debt to 2.2 million in sales within about 18 months using neuroscience and psychology. And at the time, I didn't realize it was called consumer neuroscience, which we call neuromarketing, but that field had already existed. But I started doing a ton of research. All these academic papers are out there online for practically free. And if not, there's websites like sci.hub where you can download free academic research papers and just study them. So that's what we've done. We've spent the last uh, gosh, I've been running ads now for over 10 years on Facebook, Google, Instagram, and in 2018 in January, we started our agency and here we are. All right. So let's hop back to the Ohio State University. My Buckeyes. Yes. I just had one of your former players actually come on, Mr. Liam McCullough. Wow. Long snapper for the Ohio State Buckeyes mm -hmm. and talking about him and his brother that plays currently in the NFL. Um, so I'm a big now I started following you guys. So I started kind of following the Ohio State Buckeyes. Um, so now talk to us about, you know, for me, I did have I have a, a, a TBI mm -hmm. and that's when I started getting interested, interested in, neuro, in neuroscience. Um, talk to us about your near death experience. What happened and how did it change your life? Yeah, I have, a, uh, I have an unknown airborne allergy, and it's actually happened a few times to where it closes my lungs. But the first time it did it, uh, it actually, the way that the inflammation settled in my body afterwards is it settled as myocarditis. 
which for those of those of you that have been paying, yeah, paying, so my heart engulfed uh, essentially went up in size by two and a half times to the point where like my aorta was ripping off the top of my heart, uh, which is funny because it it actually happened to me again about th- about three months ago, middle of December, it started to happen again, and uh, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, right? It doesn't matter. Uh, this stuff's still out there regardless, and it's about one in ten thousand people have this. So, yeah, uh, I was going to a band practice where I was going to go. I've been playing guitar for fifteen years. I was going to go jam out with some friends. All right, wait, hold on. We got to stop because hold on. I'm the world's okayest guitar player. Uh, okay. So, who are some of your influences, and what kind of guitar do you have? All right, so I've got a few different. I've uh, four guitars total. I have one acoustic, which is a Yamaha. Nice. Which probably gets the least amount of play time out of all of them. Because they hurt. Got, they hurt. What? They hurt. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the action's too high on them. And the strings that you got to put on them just don't really feel great. Uh, so I've got that one. That doesn't get a lot of play time. I have a really cheap knockoff Telecaster, which is called an Austin. Yep. And that's probably one of my favorites. It was my very first electric guitar. Uh, it's still one of my favorites, but I broke the bridge on it. So that needs a little bit of TLC for that to come back to life. I have a Epiphone Les Paul, which was my baby for about six years. And then I just got myself a seven string Strandberg guitar, which is a headless guitar. So it doesn't have the headstock on it. Wow. Yeah, it, it's really cool. I've loved playing that. I just got that um, back in December. So that was my gift to myself for uh, for from from working my butt off inside my agency for so long without taking a paycheck or without doing anything crazy for myself. I've said if I could get my clients $50 million from uh, the be- end of October all the way through December that I would buy myself my, my dream guitar. And we hit our numbers by a lot. So I was able to buy it for myself. So who are, who are your favorite guitarists? Um, Will Swan from Dance Gavin Dance is probably one of my favorites. I've got uh, Pliny is a Australian-based composer. He's probably one of the most underrated guitarists out there. Steve Vai, uh, back in 2018, gave uh, gave Pliny the kind of uh, the tip of the hat, if you would, and uh, at NAM, which is the biggest guitar conference in the world. Uh, when Pliny was there playing, Steve Vai said that Pliny was the only hope left for modern guitarists. Wow, cool. Yeah, but so so Pliny's awesome. If you haven't checked him out, he's got a few studio records out there, and uh, he's one hell of a composer. We're definitely gonna have to get offline and be able to sit and chat and talk and talk guitars. Um, so now, go going back to about your uh, your near death experience. I'm sorry, but I, I figure because I got a TBI where if if I don't mention it, it'll never get mentioned. So I didn't yeah, want, it's all good. You know, it's all good. We can go as on as many tangents as you want. <laughs> but yeah, so I was going to uh, I had my guitar with me. We were going to go practice. Uh, we had a gig coming up, just nothing serious, just kind of us messing around and mucking about. Um, and she, thank God she was training to be a paramedic. So I got there and I was like, I really don't feel good. And she looked at me and my eyes were glazed over. I like full red. My throat was closing up. And uh, she was like, we have to get you back to my house, get Benadryl and you get something. So it looks like you're having an allergic reaction. And if you're going to pass out, we can't have you pass out in public. We need to get you towards the house or towards the hospital. So we got back to her apartment, which was about a three minute or three block away walk. And uh, I got into her apartment and face down I went and she started doing chest compressions to help kind of keep my heart beating. But uh, after taking my pulse, she was like, you had, you had no pulse. 
So it took the paramedics about three minutes to get there and she was just doing CPR until they got there. So hands down, she saved my life. She's still a great friend to this day. So you coded out. Yep. So, you know, what was, what was life like? Cause I know after my TBI, um, everybody says, Oh, we just got to get, get, get used to the new normal. The new normal sucks for a while. Yeah. So what was your new normal? I, I struggled with the new normal for a really long time and I don't think I handled it well. For, and honestly, there's still, there's still moments um, where I, I still don't handle it well, but I, every day is a little bit better. So at least that's what I keep telling myself and hoping for. Right. So for the first probably like year and a half, I was just chasing psychedelics and drugs, just trying to chase that sensation again. And then I found flotation therapy tanks and that helped tremendously. Uh, being able to shut off all sensory input, being able just to lay there and just to process and notice thoughts as they would come and go. And that really did help kind of flesh a lot of these things out. I worked through a lot of trauma inside of there. Um, I did MDMA assisted psychotherapy when I was inside of a tank, which helped a ton inside of that environment, having a therapist there with me as I was working through some of that. Um, even now I have my moments where there's, there's night terrors and I wake up in cold sweats and screaming, but those days are getting less and less as time's gone on. Now, like I remember like, when I was growing up, I grew up in a, an abusive household. Uh, parents always fighting, always arguing. And I would go into the tub and I would fill up the tub all the way. And I would just lay down in the tub to where I couldn't hear anymore and read. You know, that was, that was my, my way of finding peace. And I think there's something about just being underwater and he just, he, not hearing anything. You know, I think there's something and I still do that now just to get a little bit of peace. So I think there's something to that therapy. So what have you found out since I'm sure you studied the hell out of it? uh, What did you find out about that therapy? It's all about how you go into it. And it's very much a. um, It's going to sound really weird and really crazy. Uh, I (laughs) I almost view it as a. It has to be ceremonial and ritualistic when you go into it because the float tank has a really weird way of producing thoughts and producing reactions out of people. So the first few times that people go in, they're really distracted by the fact that there's not a lot of sensation. The monkey mind's really running loose and it takes time to get acclimated to it. And if somebody's going through trauma and they actually find out the float tanks work, when I, even when I was managing centers, I would say uh, you might even want to look into getting one of your own and just keeping it in your house. Because at that point, like there's so much that you can uncover. And the last thing you want to do is be somewhere that's not familiar to you when you're in that spot, because it is a space of healing. You're, it's very much a therapy. It can be just like any therapy session. You can have great ones where you're walking out feeling elated. And there's times where you come out of there just sobbing in tears and you feel like that the whole world's crumbling around you. But you have to go through that entire process, both the positive and the negative, in order to see the benefits out of it. So now the dream of being a neurosurgeon is a wrap. Gone. Gone. So, you know, for a lot of people that are listening to this, they're either in the military or getting out of the military. And one day they're eventually going to have to hang up that uniform for the last time. Just like when I talked to Liam, you know, he said it was hard not to walk out in that tunnel onto the field at the Ohio State. 
it was hard to hang up that uniform. So what was it like knowing that you had to reinvent and reimagine your future? That's a really good way of putting that, um, being able to have to reinvent and reimagine it, because that's exactly what it was. I, I lost my identity. Right? I didn't lose my knowledge. You don't lose your knowledge of how to, how to throw and kick and pass the football, but you, lo- you lose your identity around who that person was. And I think that's why um, I think that's why I searched inside of psychedelics and inside of float tanks for so long was because they can help us. They, they can help find that. Not saying that's the right answer for everybody. Not saying I handled it the right way, but it helped me kind of find that identity. And I was open to receiving anything. Um, my grandfather told me that I should always at least take one level of business class. Never listened to him. Never did it. Wish I would have. It probably would have been really helpful and less uh, less expensive lessons than what I occurred on my own. But you really did have to find a different identity coming out of a situation like that. And it's hard because there's no one right or wrong way to do that. And you really have to get in touch with what's my five-year goal. What's my three-year goal. Who, if I could, uh, if I could paint that perfect picture, if I could visualize that life, that's perfect and exactly the way I want it, where I could die a happy man, knowing that I served myself, I served others. Um, I didn't, I didn't stroll through life without paying the fare back to the person that made us you really have to be self-aware to think about some of those things. Yeah. And now I, I, I got a couple of friends, my, um, my friend, Joe Walters, uh, my friend, Neil Conlon. Uh, they talk a lot about uh, microdosing. Uh, you know, th- that's cause it's in, it's a, it used in the fifties, it was kind of, they were studying it and then it kind of fell off. But now I think they're starting to study again you know, psilocybin, all that other good stuff, you know, that, or, you know, canna, cannabinoids, all that, you know, that it might help. I'm saying may, guys, so I'm, don't sue me because I'm just saying may. Uh, it may help people struggling with PTSD, traumatic brain injuries. Now, in full disclosure, I'm in recovery, um, so I can't have any kind of drugs, but anything, even microdosing or a CBD, but, um, it's being said that it's starting to help a lot of people. So what was your, uh, thought to when you first started you know, studying it and checking out all these new, the anecdotal evidence that is actually helping people again? Yeah. The science has been there for a really long time. And it's a shame it got shut down. We really can't change the past from that standpoint. All we can do is look at it and learn from it. Um, same thing. I'm not a medical doctor. This is not medical advice in any way. And nor do I condone illegal activities. Thank you for my lawyer for bringing that up. Um, but from that side, it's it, it's interesting because we have to look at where who where the information is coming from, who's funding the information, and what what are they wanting the outcome to be? So I'm, I'm at least happy that they're doing more of it. I think for me, what I found the most helpful was uh, one, getting in shape, finding daily routines and finding whatever that is that I could do substantially over time. Our brains crave structure and order. And we go, we'll put our bodies and minds in chaos in order to achieve it. And I think for most people, if they leave a structure where they're so like going back to your football player, right? He was probably had a very strict structure. He yeah. followed a routine every day. 
And then when you're done with that, that's where your identity starts to shift too, because not only, not only are our emotions baked in our, our mental state, but they're also baked in our environment. So what can we do to change our environment or change our mental state? And that will always change our emotions and our actions. So for around that, like what could you do inside of your life that would put systems and structures in place to give yourself a better, better strategy around how to approach the day? You know, like, like so what would you consider a win for the day? Right. And until we can write these down and have the self-awareness around what can I do every day substantially that's going to drive me forward to my five-year goal. It doesn't matter what drug you take, what substance you take, how you structure your life, you're always going to feel slightly aimless. Yeah, and I love that. You know, I and I have a friend, his name is John McCaskill. He's a retired Navy SEAL commander. And he says, you know, that whatever you do before you go to bed, or whatever you do when you wake up in the morning, that's how your day's gonna go. You know, like you were talking about, you know, structure. But, you know, a lot of people think, you know, I'll take a pill or, uh, you know, I'll drop this, but they don't realize that it takes action to change your life. You know, you got to put in the work, you know, like in order to, you know, to be a surgeon, you got to do the, you got to do the reps. And I think a lot of people that when they start trying to get mentally healthy again, oh, I'm just going to take a pill, but they don't really unpeel the onion to try to get through the trauma. And they come to come to grips with trauma. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Where do you think people? Uh, where? So if you were to, if you somebody comes to you and says, "Where do I start?" Where do you think that you start? Me personally, yeah. um, I actually have a three-step plan that's guaranteed to change a person's life if they put in the work. One, and I tell this on a lot of my shows. They have to forgive everybody that's hurting them, hurt them, not forget difference between forget and forgiving, not forget. Um, number two, write down all the people we've hurt and attempt to make amends. And then the third and the hardest one is to forgive ourselves of mm. all the dirty shit that we did. And once you get rid of all that stuff, that crap, once you take all that stuff out of your rucksack, you can finally start to walk on the treadmill again. But if you're continually walking on the treadmill and you're just throwing blocks in the back of the rucksack, eventually it's going to weigh you down and you're not going to be able to walk anymore. Ooh, that's so good. There's so much there to unpack too. That's such a good one. And it's simple. Yeah, it is. Doesn't mean it's easy, right? But it's, it's simple. simple. Well, and of course I got that because you know, I'm I've been clean 33 years. So I've been in the rooms of ANA, AA, all the A's. So that's where I got that from. It's, it's nothing original, but it's something that I, I found that works. So, you know, now once I started my podcast, I did good for a while um, until I sat down with a friend of mine. His name is William Matry. And he said, well, what are your colors? And I'm like, what is it? Why does it matter what my color is? He says, because certain colors makes give you give people certain thoughts mm -hmm. and then i'm like cuz i'm i'm a i'm a gamecocks guy i'm a south carolina gamecock that's why all my colors are are garnet and silver but he said you know if you look at uber you know you look at their lip, black and white you, you think high class and you think anything black and white's high class 
you think of McDonald's, anytime you see yellow, they say that that color scheme creates hunger. So talk to us about the neuro and how you got into the neuroscience of branding and marketing. Yeah, so really within the neuromarketing realm, we're looking at how do we integrate senses into brands? And then how do we start to elicit certain responses from that? There's the psychology of color, which is what you were talking about. Um, sound is one of the most persuasive elements that we can use outside of, um, outside of our vision. So sound, you know, we can all remember the jingles, right? The J.G. Wentworth commercial. Everybody that's ever watched TV in the last 15 years can sing the J.G. Wentworth uh, commercial. Or uh, for us here in Cincinnati, when someone says it's skyline time, you can hear the rest of, your, rest of the song in your head. Music is very powerful and brands have known this for a very long time, but social media kind of put a damper on it because we could get instantaneous access with video to a bunch of different contexts around advertising and marketing and at different speeds that we could never get before. So a lot of the older principles around how do we get people to memorize who we are, what we do and what we offer has dramatically shifted in the last 10 years. So we look at marketing internally as a game of memorization. So if you think of everything that you do within your marketing plan, within your business, how do you get people to memorize who you are, what you do, what you offer? We can really start to put some cool things around it. One of the clothing brands that we did, we implemented a scent because smell is one of the most powerful forms of memory encoding, specifically when it's for women too, which is, this was a women's based clothing brand. So we got them a certain smell that then every single piece of clothing that went out had this smell already in it. And women loved it. Their men who were with that individual loved it too. Their significant partners loved the smell. So what does it do every time that the partner gets reinforced from the smell? It tells that individual, hey, this is a really great product because I'm getting the validation. I'm feeling significant. I'm feeling loved from somebody because of the way this product makes me feel. So then we start looking at different ways that we can build marketing messages around that. How do we make people certain about a certain outcome, right? You wear this shirt, if you put on this cologne, it's going to make you feel a certain way, right? Then we have the other side of that, which is if we give somebody new, something novel, it triggers inside the brain, right? We love pulling that dopamine switch as human beings. We love the novelty, right? It's our reward-seeking behaviors because we have to figure out if this is going to be a viable path forward for survival at a deep psychological level first. And then humans, we love to be significant, right? What's this product or service going to do to me to make me feel like I'm top chimp above everybody else? This is what the military does really great with rank and order, right? I said earlier, our brains love to process things in order, specifically mm -hmm. hierarchies of individuals, right? It's why we play games with one another and why we like to be ranked inside of games. We have to have a system and a structure of order of dominance across the field because it's how we're wired. We also have this idea of contribution. So as a human being, because we're tribal by nature, I want to feel like I'm contributing back because it's going to mean that I probably stay in the tribe longer without getting kicked out. And then one of the most overlooked ones that I think most brands and companies fail on is how are you helping your customers grow, right? This is what people like Tony Robbins have been talking about for 20 years, but nobody really does it great. The idea of how do I make you grow? How do I make this individual better than where they were before with my product or service. If you think about McDonald's, McDonald's doesn't help you grow. Maybe your waist size a little bit, but they're not helping you grow as an individual. Well, yeah, right? but I want to drop something real quick because 
Um, obviously, uh, you're familiar with a couple of my mentors, uh, Mr. Ed Milet. Yeah. Um, and also um, Mr. MF CEO Project. Uh, Andy Purcell, baby. And, Both and, of them are my uh, RTA syndicate mentors. Yep. That's, uh, and I was just going to go there that, you know, they are the reason why I have this show because that's awesome. I want people to be able to, when they hang up and be like, all right, I want to change, you know, there's, you know, their shows and what they do, they're all about, you know, having shows that change people. And, you know, like Tim Ferriss, you know, they talk about the changing. So I just wanted to mention those two gentlemen because they are uh, really big in my life. So I just wanted, I'm going to give them a big shout out, but I just wanted to, you know, cause I seen that in your bio and I was like, I just wanted to mention that. Cause a lot of people, if you in interview you, they might skip over the Ohio state stuff. You know, they might skip over the, you know, those guys. So, but I want to be that guy that I just wanted to, you know, give, give them a little bit of love and a little bit of shout out for the things that how they're changing the world with 75 hard and also with the Ed Milet show. Yeah, absolutely. I would not be where I am today without other, either one of those two gentlemen, uh, both of which have shaped my life incredibly. So when I was working at the float tank center, um, I was float tanks are float tanks are great places. They're like spas, but the idea is that, uh, human beings are kind of nasty creatures in their own right, right? We're all kind of gross in our own ways, but when you surround people with tea, water, put them in a bath essentially for an hour, first thing they want to do is they want to come piss in the shower right before and right after they get out of that flow tank. So I was not only cleaning salt off of walls, tanks, floors, but I was scrubbing people's piss up all day long too. And uh, you can't talk when you're there because people are floating and they want to be in a quiet environment. So I would listen to the MF CEO project with Vaughn when he was uh, still on the show. And Vaughn asked Andy, you know, how do you become the best version of yourself consistently? And Andy's answer was, I don't care if you're the guy at McDonald's making French fries. You have to make sure that every French fry that comes out that has your name on it of approval is up to your standard. And I remember they're just cleaning pee off of walls and off of floors and being like, man, like at least I can say that after every time I clean this floor, nobody would ever be able to tell that that happened beforehand. Now, you know, and, like I said, I just sometimes I go off on tangents, but I that's just, all right. I do, too. I just wanted to show them the love. But like talking about music, like I put out a video, I'll know that if I put out, I'm, I'm starting to grow a following on TikTok, not very big, only about 4,000 followers. But if I put out a video with the sound of silence with by Disturbed, that video is going to get tens of thousands of likes. Where sure. if I just put out that same video with some other song, nobody's going to even listen to it, you know, or like if I'll put out a video and cause I'm a big five finger death punch guy. And if I put out something with five finger death punch, I know people are going to, because they're veterans or first responders and they love that stuff. So I yep. love how you talk about music, but now I was also at one time selling timeshares and we would bake on property like 5,000 cookies a day. And people would, they would just buy timeshares. And even 20 years later, they're like, you guys still got the cookies? You know what I mean? It created yep. that sense. You know, this is like when a home, when you go into buy a home, 
and they stage it right and they smell it right, it becomes a, an overload of senses. Is that what you guys were talking about? Yes, that's a good part of it. They did a really awesome study about nightclubs. And uh, for five different nights, uh, they did it all on a Friday night in downtown Miami. They put out a different scent every Friday night for five nights or for five Fridays. And they tested alcohol sales coming out of that. So, right, that, that's how nightclubs make all their business is alcohol sales. And this, they tested things like vanilla, cookies. They tested citrus. They tested mints. Um, and the one that came back as the most likely to increase sales was the scent of orange. Okay. Citrus. Yeah, I could, I could see that. And did they say, yeah. did they say why? Yeah. The study got into it a little bit, just that, uh, it was refreshing and that it was more of a, uh, you have to take context of plate, like where you're at. Right. So the idea that they thought because it was Miami, uh, and it's very much a, uh, Latin American population that the scent of oranges is very light and refreshing for people down there. Okay. But so they, now, at Disneyland, Disney will still pump uh, chocolate, the smell of baked cookies off in the main street. So it's one of the first things you smell when you walk in. So now, you know, since I, I got into podcasting, it's been three years now, um, but now I've just taken it really serious. The last six months, everything has changed. Everything. Yeah. Everything with social media has changed. So talk to us about what's going on with marketing. And I'm a big branding guy. I believe you are your brand. Like I'm a big sports geek. I'm a big sports geek. So just imagine if, if Michael Jordan would come out one day wearing an Adidas jumpsuit and Adidas sneakers. People would lose their minds. Oh, yeah. You'd have riots. But because he's known as... Air Jordan. He, he's known as the face of Nike, even though Phil Knight owns it. So talk to us about branding and marketing in 2022. It's what's so you're hundred percent right. You are your brand, no matter how hard you try to hide it. Uh, specifically millennials and younger, they love to know the why behind a brand. And if they don't have a compelling why, they don't have a story to grip onto. They they don't care necessarily as much about price. Now, if we end up heading into this recession, uh, that attitude might change a little bit because of the hyperinflation that we're going through. But for the most part, millennials and younger love to buy off of the why. So there's a really great book called Building a Story Brand by a guy named Donald Miller. That's my, where he walks next, you that's my next book that I got to pick up. I just picked yep. up because I, I listen to Audible when I do my cardio. And I just picked up Russell Brunson's uh, new book. And now I guess the next one's going to be Mr. Miller's new, new book. Yeah, it's tremendous. It's a literally step-by-step -step manual. It's stuff marketers have known since the Mad Men days. Uh, but he, he was able to break it down and really uh, make it a lot more user-friendly and take a lot of the business jargon out of it. So he, the, ever, the average everyday person can pick up the book, build a website, build a funnel, build whatever you want to do and understand how to build a brand that's worth sharing. Okay. Now for me, um, I love Ted talks. I love, you know, anybody that can tell a story and I believe, you know, facts will tell, but stories will sell. What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent, because it gets back to who we are at a very fundamental psychological level. We don't remember facts. We just don't. We'll remember stories because it's how knowledge and wisdom and information was passed down for tens of thousands of years 
and how it started to get encoded. So we're able to get the emotional memory really baked and locked into the story a lot easier than we can statistics. If I rattle off a statistic, which is true that one in 10 children around the world die from in or from uh, in-house particulates caused by indoor fires from cooking, right? That statistic is really, really baffling, right? The idea when you think about how many kill, how many children there are in the world today, specifically within third world countries, it's the number one killer over there. The idea that they're creating fires inside their house, right? They're cooking on the stove. They've got the indoor fire going and all these particulates are going in the air and they're breathing it in and it's settling in their lungs. And just that, that awful gruesome cough that they would get from it. You're going to remember that story and remember some of those details around the emotion more than you're going to remember the 10% or the one in 10. Okay. Now for me, like when I go speak on stages or when I, you know, when I speak anywhere, you know, I tell the people, I say, listen, you might, this is not for you. This is probably, this talk is not for you because, you know, this is for the one person that's struggling, you know, that's really, you know, came here with a heavy heart. So this is probably not for you. So go play on your phone and people will start, they, they, they kind of move in a little bit more and you're like, what do you, what, what do you mean? It's not for me. You know what I mean? So, and then I tell my story about, you know, my recovery and, you know, my suicide attempt. But I think, you know, once you you have to use like talking, you got to use voice inflection and stuff like that. And it's, it's little things that people don't really think of unless you're doing what you do. And this is what you teach others to do. Correct. Yes. Um, so both from a content standpoint and from just having a podcast for a while, you pick that stuff up. One of the things that people really overlook are the ands and the ums and the buts and the, uh, and they'll hold them out instead of just taking the time, holding a pause and letting there be a little bit of weight in between what they say. Yeah. See, even like that sentence, it pairs off a little bit nicer, rolls through the audio waves a little bit cleaner than if I was going really, really fast. And we were talking about everything that we had to get inside of one second. It's harder to get all that information to really sync as opposed to if you take your time and just roll with it. Okay. So now you've took, you said you, you were making eight, eight and a half, eight, eight dollars and a half. And 825 man 25 but you're taking, barely minimum wage but you're taking this guy's business to the emph to the next level and and i know it's hard to say how you did it but how'd you do it <laughs> we got really clear on the customer journey so from we were i started tracking and managing emotions so i would opened up an Excel sheet and I said, what are their emotions six months before they find out about us? What are their emotions a month before they find us? What are their emotions the day of that they find us? What are their emotions when they book? What are their emotions when they first show up? What are their emotions before, right before the experience when they hop into the float tank? What are their experiences after the float tank? And then what's their experience of us? The same intervals, one, one day, three months, six months, one year. And I started tracking all of it in an Excel sheet. And I got really good at managing emotion, literally because I would document it. The idea of what gets measured gets managed and what gets managed typically improves. So we're not chasing, we're really fortunate in the United States. We're not chasing dollars as much as we used to. We're chasing, our, we, we're chasing the last great experience that we had with a company and with other people. 
And that's what we're all doing as humans. Specifically here inside the United States, we're really bad about it. And it causes a lot of causes a lot of weird side effects, but it also allows us as business owners to leverage that to our advantage. Because if we can be the one to provide that last great experience and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again, we can get really, really clear on how we're bringing lifetime value to a client. Okay. That's, that's, that's what I did. There were, there were other tricks, right? I, I laid in neuromarketing processes. I laid in scents. I laid in sounds. Um, I was got hypersensitive about what type of shampoos were used. I got hypersensitive about what scents we uh, put off through aromatherapy without the center, what sounds we used, how the booking process went, how, like, how much friction was in that process. We started to manage everything in the customer journey. And then we also got good at paid media after all of that. And this is where, when I was talking to you earlier, before we got started, I, you asked me kind of like, where, like, where do most people fall flat inside of a business process? And I said, it's because they're, they're trying to pay for paid media before they ever tighten up the ship internally. And if you do that, you're just going to cause more customers to get angry and upset with you. You're going to lose money and you're going to lose your brand's reputation because you didn't focus on fixing the things internally first that create that last great experience. And, you know, and I think, you know, that's something that I'm learning. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm, I ran a million dollar a year general nutrition center. I could, I could sell anything. I could sell ice to ice to an Eskimo, but I do didn't know, you know, cause it's different when you're face to face than for me, when you're, you know, marketing, you know, I didn't realize how important copy copy is, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, you think that you, everything should be so hard on copy, but the simpler it is, the simpler, you know, the more sales you get, you know, but I didn't realize that, you know, it's different between, you know, me f physically in the store than on my phone right here. You know, like for me, you know, when I tell people my story, it hits their pain point. And a lot of people, I think when you're in sales, they really don't hit that pain point to where there's no reason for them to, to you know, if you have a call to action to buy something, or well, I didn't feel anything, so I'm not going to buy anything. You know, it's because like me and my wife, we'll, we'll drive around and we'll hear a certain song and she'll bring a memory back of her dad or her mom and the emotions right there. But I think a lot of us, we kind of, when we're in sales, we kind of forget this, why somebody should buy from you. If you don't, if you're not getting that emotion, you're not going to, you're not going to sell nothing. Right. Can't be transactional anymore. So then, you know, how does a person do that? You know, say a guy like me, you know, I just retired out of GNC after 30 years and we, we know how their thought process is. Well, this is the way we've always done it. Well, your ass is going out of business, kind of like Radio Shack. So how does a person move into the 2022, you know, after being in you know, regular, you know, sales or, you know, regular uh, brick and mortar? I would say you have to get good at being the same person you are in person online. So the idea that you... I've, I've helped people sell over a million dollars in a single year by doing nothing but being on Facebook. They don't have a website. They don't push through DMs on Messenger. All they are 
they literally sold a million dollars off of a single Google doc. So a free doc that you can make with Google and just being who they are on Facebook and telling their story. But it takes building a tribe, building a community, building that network of people that know, like, and trust you and getting them to bring a friend. I love it. So now you got to tell me, how are you getting these companies to hit 50 million in a couple months? Those took a lot of ad spend to get there. So we were hitting about four to one um, over this last year through Facebook and Google. And a lot of it comes down to understanding what we were talking about earlier, which is how do you, how do you layer different marketing strategies at different points of your customer journey? All the way from what we call top of funnel, which is where the audience is completely cold. They have no idea who you are, what you do, how you solve their pain points, all the way down through the sales where my camera go. There we go. All the way down through the sales process to where they've sold, right? They're not, they're no longer a warm lead. They're no longer a hot lead. They've sold, they've bought from you. And then the, this is where most marketers and most advertisers mess up. They assume that the sales funnel stops there, but really it opens back up again for a little bit. And then inside of that next spot, we have what we call the honeymoon phase, right? The customer's super happy with you. That's where you're going to get your review and your testimonial. Everybody's pumped. They're pumped. You're pumped. Everybody's happy. And then the next stage down from that, just like how we have the middle spot of the funnel up top where people are warm, we also have that same spot down at the bottom side. But this is what we call the what have you done for me recently zone. And this is where businesses get into trouble and because they don't know how to manage the emotion of their customer from top to bottom. So they're really good at getting the emotion high at top. They'll go all the way through the sale, the sale, the emotion super high up. And then after the sale, it goes cold. The emotion's gone. They don't know how to interact with them. They don't know how to engage them again. It's almost like this weird dance that they don't know how to hop back into. And then we reach the what have you done for me recently phase, which is where that marketing pipeline should really overlap from the top again. And now we're creating this loop of people buying things consistently from you. We're reinforcing behavior. We're going through our neuromarketing process that we have that's getting patented. But the idea is that once you're inside of this area, this is really where you can start to turn customers over and over again because we're creating loyalty by solving their problem repeatedly. And this is how you start to really grow these big brands is by understanding how much your customer acquisition cost is versus lifetime value. Because if I can extend that lifetime value out, but shrink the window or expand the window of how long that customer is actually going to engage with you without trying to break their piggy bank. Now we've got a fun system we can work with. All right. So now, like I said, I, I'm all new to this and I, and I'll always admit I'm a newbie, you know, uh, like I have a mailing list. I think it's only like 300 people. Um, but for me, I'm blessed. I'm grateful just to have that 300 people because, you know, because they're taking the time out of their life, allowing me, to, you know, them to come on my list. So how does a person, when they're building a list, not become that, you know, you sign, like somebody buys my ebook, you know, they get on my mailing list. How do you be, not become, and I hate the cursing on my show, but it's my show so I can do it. Uh, how do you not become that asshole that just constantly spams your email and, and you're like, all right, unsubscribe. So what's a good way to build your email list and to build relationship with your email list? It all comes down. That's a really good question. Um, and there's actually a few parts to that. I would look at one is, is an email list really the way that your customers want to interact with you? 
are there other options besides email to where they feel like they need they need more interaction, they need a faster pace of interaction, they want more community than what an email can provide. So I would look at it from is email even the right option for your brand? And this is what I was talking about, understanding your customer journey and your pipeline and managing their emotions. Because if they don't care about email, like if you're dealing with a bunch of millennials or gen or uh, the generation beneath them, like they don't they don't want to deal with email. Email inboxes for them should be empty. It's only for receipts. It's for um, tracking orders. And that's really about all they want to manage inside of an inbox. They don't like to communicate that way. Um, and the idea of getting them into a Facebook group is probably going to be pretty low and not, uh, not conducive to their learning style. So how would they want to communicate and understanding where you can meet them from some of these pathways and some of these angles. So like a coffee shop, like the, uh, the soldier girl one, I would imagine a lot of her audience is probably, uh, skews a little bit younger right? And probably skews a little bit feminine just because yeah. it's a feminine owner. Yeah. So from that standpoint, understanding who that customer is and the psychology of how they interact with social media platforms and technology in general, females love emotional connection a lot more than men do. They'll, they value emotional connection over physical things. So for them, how can, you, how can you reinforce and support the emotional connection that they have to the tribe? Is it a chat bot? Is it a, um, like a discord group? Is it a chat group? Whatever that is, I would find a way to liquidate the friction between you and your customers first. Because if we can't get that right, then it doesn't matter how strong your list is or how good your message is, it's going to fall flat because the medium's not right. We're missing the context of how they actually want to communicate. And then the second part to your question is how do you prevent them from falling off? You have to either get them to self-engage. So using like face, this is what Facebook groups prided themselves on for so long, which was even as the admin or the moderator, you really shouldn't be having to put in a ton of work. Once you get the community going, it really kind of self-censors and self-monitors itself because of the tribe and the uh, culture that you've built inside of it. But those days have kind of gone a little bit by the wayside. So you have to look at a different model and a different approach. So we would look at it as what's What's the medium? Is the medium right? And then how are you telling messages in different ways? How are you letting them connect? Where does this sit inside of your customer pipeline? Is it sitting after a sale? Is it sitting before a sale? Is it both? Because if you're doing both, the message has to be a little bit broader, but it still has to be kind of weirdly targeted because they've already purchased from you, right? So the idea of you asking for a sale in a mixed group probably won't go very well because people have already purchased from you. So do you have a pre-sale group and a post-sale group because then that can that creates friction then right i don't want to have to join two groups or two different email lists this is why email wins in some ways is that i can segment all that out based off of purchasers and non-purchasers it's all about how you want to stack it right i everything that we have at our disposal today will work email works sms works facebook groups work doing discord groups works doing MySpace works. It's all about where your audience is and how you want to build that relationship. But everything works. It's just how you use them. Okay. For me, you know, and now like I said, once we've talked today, I consider you a friend and I consider, you know, I want to build a relationship. Um, I, I want to build a generational relationship. That's the kind, that's the kind of guy I am. We're like, uh, yesterday was my birthday. So I went and I got like, 800 messages on Facebook and like a thousand of them on, on LinkedIn. And, you know, and I said, you know, I was talking to my cousin, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, 
I'm gonna have the next busy couple of days because I I want to reply to them all personally instead of you know putting out a bot or you know a, a mass message. And I think that makes a difference when you know somebody will, you know that it wasn't sent out through a mass mailing. You know, it was just actually somebody saying, thank you for taking the time to even acknowledge my birthday. And I think that's what you're talking about is building tribe and building relationship, right? Yeah. It, so I started to hit, that's exactly right. I started to hit on the six human needs earlier. Uh, Tony Robbins talks about them. Ed Milet's a big proponent of them. Uh, I'll go through them real fast for the people that are listening, because odds are you have relationships and you buy from brands or businesses that do this for you too. We have certainty. So the idea of if, if I buy a car, it's going to get me from point A to point B. Or if I use this mechanic, I'm certain that he has a quality of work about him or her that's going to provide the superior service, right? Then we have the second one, which is uncertainty. That's that novelty or dopamine switch in our brain. This is what Facebook loves to harp on. So uh, Facebook for uncertainty, which is novelty in disguise, uh, they'll hide notifications. Like if you have push notifications on, they'll hold some back. So if they notice you haven't been on in two hours, they'll ding your notifications like crazy to try to get you to come back into the platform and re-engage because it's something new, it's something novel, and you don't know what it is. Then we have the third human need, which is the idea of significance, the idea that I'm top chimp, right? I want to be king. I want to be the best human being in the world. I'm the top athlete. I'm the top business owner. I'm the best dad out there. Everybody's looking for significance in some way, shape, or form. Then we have the idea of contribution. So humans want to contribute back to the tribe. We want to feel like we're giving more than we're taking because oftentimes that means that we're a valued member of the tribe and of our society. Then we have um, certainty, uncertainty, significance, and we have growth. So the idea that as a human, I always want to be growing. I always want to be finding that next evolution of myself. And then we have the last one, which is love and belonging. The idea that I belong here, I'm loved here. What a powerful statement for a brand to come and say, right? That if you're part of my tribe, you're loved. How often do you hear that, especially from a male dominated brand? It kind of throws you back a little bit. Like if Nike came out and said that it loved all of its customers and truly found a way to make that statement work, can you imagine how powerful that would be? Yeah, I, mean, most- I get it. You know, because like sometimes, like for me, you know, Facebook has your birthdays, you know, they let you know whose birthday it is. So, I direct message all my birthday friends and happy birthday, bro, bro or sis. Just want you to let you know I love to appreciate you. Have an amazing day. And some people, you know, they'll be like, wow. And then the, the small, minute people will be like, all right, what do you want? You know, and you're like, nothing. I don't want anything. I just wanted to wish you a happy birthday. And I think, you know, a lot of people, if we started doing that again, um, I think that we would be able to build more powerful brands because I'm, I'm a big Gary Vaynerchuk guy. Um, I believe, in, you know, like you're talking about now, he put out a book, I guess, maybe even eight, 10 years now called Jab, 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 Right Hook. It talks about all the platforms and, you know, how to use native content. So, you know, but I think if you, if you do stuff like you're talking about is, you know, like you said, well, how would you feel if you woke up one day and all of a sudden you got an inbox from Phil Knight, knowing it's from him saying, hey, bro, happy birthday. You you probably you would tell everybody you knew you'd screenshot it, you'd share it. You know, I think that's the way I think business is going to be done, I think, in the next 
you know, five to 10 years. It's going to have to transition that way. There's too many businesses and too many people in the marketplace for it not to. And somebody else is doing it. There's, I love other, it. Like, there, there's another business that's going to go with the emotional route of marketing and they're going to win because of that very reason. We are emotional creatures. And the idea is like you were talking about earlier, facts tell, but stories sell. The story of Phil Knight messaging you for your birthday, leaving you a DM on Instagram, and you know it came from his account because you can look at it backwards. What what a cool story that you would then tell, like you said, every single one of your friends. Yeah, like I'd be a Nike customer for life then, wouldn't you? Yeah, like I I I I went blind two years ago. And the day after my surgery, I get a message from Ed and he's like want you to come down to South Carolina, come down to my event, free, come down for free and hang out at my event, my three-day event. And I'm like, great. I get to meet him. I get, you know, I, and my parents live down that way, but I couldn't fly because of my eyes, but I'm like, just him inviting me down for a three-day event sold me out. <laughs> he, no matter what he puts out, I'm buying and and I know it wasn't just because of you know the buy stuff, but just because he did something like that, he, he has a, you know a fan for life, you know. Yep, Ed's a very special soul. I've had the honor and privilege of hanging out with him a few times, and it's been um, every time I hang out with him, he has a way of making you feel better about yourself. So, last two questions I have: um, sure. How do I? How do we find you? How can we get in touch with you? How can we support your mission? I'm on the mission of helping businesses make smarter marketing decisions and not buy into the guru BS that's out there that uh, you're just one click funnel away or you're one Facebook ad away from becoming a multimillionaire. It's, it could be true. It very much could be. But everything in life that comes easy typically leaves pretty easy too. And I've seen it break too many businesses. I've seen it break too many business owners when Marketing is marketing is weaponized without the right structures and strategies in place to really allow for that growth to happen. So I have a podcast. It's called NeuroHive, uh, N-E-U-R-O space Hive, just like a beehive. And our goal is to help business owners make smarter marketing decisions. So we're in there every week. We're dropping new episodes weekly for that. So that's the best way. If you want to follow me on Instagram, that's great, too. It's at Alex.Vonderhard. My name's up here on the screen. You can find me there pretty easily. Okay. Now, you know, I, I just got my first, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm always transparent, always 100. I want, I got a click, click funnels just to find out what the hell it's all about. And I just had my first funnel. We had a couple sales, but, you know, and, but I have a, me- a couple mentors that are mentoring me and they're like, you failed for a reason. And I'm like, all right, you know, why did it fail? He says, emotion there was no reason for anybody to buy anything because they did not feel emotional enough to fulfill your call to action and i think that's exactly what you're talking about is emotions and if if somebody doesn't have the emotion no matter what it is they're not going to buy a hundred percent that's a great way to put it so last question i have um you know, I live here in New Jersey. Um, we got a great governor. Uh, we're about to go. I think we're about to go back on lockdown. Um, in the United States, we've lost over a thousand restaurants in the last two years. So we have a lot of parents driving for Uber 
DoorDash, just trying to put food on the table. So if there's somebody out there right now that is struggling, trying to get a business off the ground or struggling, struggling with their branding and marketing, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get some clarity? Boy, that's a great question. Um, if you're in desperate need of money at any point in time, the easiest way is to do uh, the Gary. You brought up Gary V earlier, and it, it's funny and hilarious because it works uh, kind of creepily well, which is you can set up an online store fairly easily with Amazon, and you just become a flipper. So you can go on Craigslist, you can go on eBay, you can find uh, Facebook Marketplace and find things that people are selling. Look up it, look it up on eBay, look it up on Amazon Marketplace and see if you can sell it for a swap essentially and see if you can get that to you know another five or ten dollars out of the item that you normally wouldn't get you can do that over multiple items repeatedly you can really start to build a great income on a daily basis and then that process can be fully managed by somebody else that loves that process a lot more than you do and it can become a great side hustle if you're looking to build your own brand, you have to, you have to really find some, you have to find this really cool marriage of what you love and what the marketplace is asking for. Because just because you love something and you think there's a need for it doesn't mean that the need is actually present at the moment. So, and this is where I've seen a lot of businesses fail. It's not that the idea isn't great. It's not that the owner doesn't have the passion. It's just simply timing. And sometimes the timing just isn't right. Doesn't mean you still can't build your brand. Still doesn't mean that you can't be um, you know, curating lists or doing research for people, go on Upwork or Fiverr, you know, as opposed to driving a car, you've got a specialty. There's people right now that are looking for people to literally listen to podcast episodes and transcribe them into blog posts. And they're paying 15, 20 bucks an hour to do that. And how fast can you crank through a podcast just transcribing it? Right. There, there's options out there is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't have to resort to you strictly always trading your time for money for a lot of these services. Cause like for the podcast example, you could literally download or they'll give you the source file and say, yeah, I'll transcribe it and proofread and make it a blog post for you. You can upload that onto something like rev.com for a dollar a minute. It'll transcribe all that podcast for you. And then you can create a blog post out of it for a couple hundred bucks a blog post. There's ways there's a ton of creative ways. I love it. Alex, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so humble that you actually hang out and give us some tips. Um, big ups to The Ohio State. Uh, big OH. Big shout out to my brother, Liam. Uh, Ohio State long, long snapper. He actually had, had to retire because of myocarditis after catching COVID. So, wow. Yeah, but he and, and everybody that I've met from the Ohio State, all been amazing people. So I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, guys, definitely check him out. Check out what he's doing. He's got some amazing stuff going on. Uh, guys, please check out my book. It's out now, 1097. 22% go to help veterans that are helping, that are de dealing with mental health issues and also homelessness. So definitely check out the book. And we got a lot of the bonuses that are going with it, including vertical momentum coffee right there ass kicking coffee 50 percent, baby high energy um and then i also want to thank soldier girl coffee um she's doing amazing things she's also a veteran struggling with ptsd 
got up on her bootstraps, started her own company. And now she's actually sponsoring a NASCAR. So she's doing big things. Check out Soldier Girl Coffee. Bro, I just want to say thank you so much. And uh, I'm so, I can't wait to see what you got coming on in the future. Thanks, Richard. It was great. Audience, you guys, you were awesome. Thank you again for all of your service you've done for this country, for those that have served. Uh, you really, you really are the backbone of this society, and I can't say thank you enough. Thank you, brother. Guys, remember vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.